This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Rivals by Bill Emmett. The former editor-in-chief for The Economist, Emmett explores a growing rivalry between Asia's three great powers, Japan, China, and India, in sectors ranging from their militaries to, interestingly, cutting-edge environmental technologies. If you're interested in Asia's rising powers, and in the American role in responding to their rise, this is a good place to start. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. to the History of Japan podcast, episode 180, Red Star Over Tokyo, part 5. So now we turn our revolutionary eyes fully to the post-war era, when Japan rose from the ashes to become an economic power at a mind-bogglingly fast rate. How would the Marxist left fare in this new environment? The answer, somewhat paradoxically, was to become both politically irrelevant and politically entrenched at the same time. But how could that be possible? Well, the answer to that question lies in the little meeting held in 1955 and the political context surrounding it. After the fall of the Katayama cabinet and the American reverse course, the Japan Socialist Party fractured under the strain of failure. The fault line was the same one that had killed so many Japan Socialist parties before it, the division between centrist, moderate socialists, and Marxist or Marx-influenced socialists. Each blamed the other for either being too radical to attract the votes of moderates, or too moderate to attract the votes of radicals. And so, in 1948, the party dissolved. Each faction took its marbles and went home to found a new party, creatively called the Right and Left Socialist Parties. As you might imagine, this did not do much for the electoral chances of either party. Both consistently pulled behind the two major conservative parties, formed primarily of ex-bureaucrats and pre-war politicians who'd returned to government after the war. Confusingly, from the American perspective, those parties are known as the Liberals and the Democrats. Remember, that's liberal in the European context, as in market liberal, not liberal in the American sense of progressive. The electoral polling order varied a little bit, but generally it was liberals first, democrats second, left socialists third, right socialists fourth. By 1955, however, it was becoming increasingly obvious that this kind of electoral strategy was not tenable if the socialists ever wanted to, you know, win. So there was a talk between the two parties of putting differences aside and coming together to figure out how to handle things like adults. Maybe the Japan Socialist Party could be reborn and return to relevance. 
Obviously, this was not welcome news to the members of the Liberal and Democratic parties. Their party presidents, Hatoyama Ichiro and Yoshida Shigeru, were worried that a unified socialist party could electorally steamroll them, as had happened in 1947. So, in 1955, the Liberals and Democrats sat down and agreed to a merger to form the Liberal Democratic Party, a group we have spent some time talking about in the past few years. They would dominate every election for the next 38 years with help from a heavily gerrymandered electoral map and a voting system that weighed rural, mostly right-leaning votes, much more heavily than urban, generally more left-leaning ones, as well as some good old money from the CIA, which bankrolled the early days of the party. So today I want to talk about a pretty important question. What does it mean to be a Marxist in a time when neither revolution nor the ballot box seems like a particularly promising way to accomplish your objectives? First, let's turn our attention to the socialists, who, if you're wondering, did finally, kind of, sort of, get their stuff together to reform the Japan Socialist Party, except that some of the moderate socialists refused to play nice with the other children and kept a splinter socialist party alive, which right there illustrates one of the biggest problems faced by the socialists, the communists, and generally every left-leaning political group worldwide. From the early days of Marx on, the idea of systemic political thought in the left, a constructed worldview that all members of a party must buy into, has been something of a touchstone. The party sets a platform, and everybody either gets on board or gets out. This has the obvious benefit of keeping party discipline pretty high. Everybody who is in, after all, generally buys into the platform, but it has the downside of making large political coalitions very hard to organize. Asking people to pragmatically put aside their differences and focus on a single issue rather than a coherent, complete worldview becomes a bit of a non-starter in such cases. By comparison, the Japanese right-wing and right-wing parties in general was deeply pragmatic and willing to build large coalitions. It was also willing to borrow very heavily ideologically from the opposition in order to get the job done. For example, while the one-year reign of socialist Prime Minister Kateyama Tetsu was not exactly record-breaking, several of his policies related to an expanded social safety net were very popular, which was fine for the LDP. It committed to keeping those safety nets alive, even though that's the kind of thing we associate more with the political left. But people liked it so the LDP liked it too. This generalization between a schismatic left and a more pragmatic right is, well, obviously generalized, and like a lot of generalizations, it becomes less than totally accurate by virtue of being broad. However, I do think that a lack of political flexibility was one of the first and biggest problems faced by the Japanese left. It simply could not consistently attract people because it could not make promises, or cut deals as effectively as the LDP could. Nor did Japan's electoral system do the socialists many favors. Japan used, and still kind of, sort of, uses, an electoral system that is clankily referred to by political scientists as the Single Non-Transferable Vote Multi-Member District Model, or SNTVMMD, if you're in on the lingo. 
So what the hell does that mean? Well, single non-transferable vote simply means that Japanese people voted the way Americans did and still do. One vote for one candidate. If there are four parties in your district with a candidate running for the lower house, you pick one. There's no runoff voting where the top two or three candidates advance to a new round of elections, nor is there preference voting where you can rank candidates and essentially have like a weighted vote or an instant runoff election. Multi-member districts, meanwhile, mean that each district has more than one representative which it sends to parliament. So if your district has two representatives, the top two vote-getters are the ones who go. This system lends itself extremely well to very well-oiled political machines. For example, in a multi-member system you can win an election with a majority rather than a plurality. If the vote breakdown for four candidates is 30%, 26%, 24%, and 20%, then the one with 30% of the vote is the top vote-getter and is guaranteed a seat in Parliament even though only 3 out of 10 voters in the district actually like him. This means that an effectively run party political machine could, for example, take a district where 51% of the population supported the LDP and use those numbers to get two seats in Parliament by carefully guiding voters to ensure a 26-25% vote split and coming in ahead of, say, a 24% to 24% split among two socialist candidates. This was just what the LDP did. Using rather slim, high single-digit to low double-digit majorities in countryside districts, they consistently swept every seat by very carefully guiding the votes of their supporters. A big part of this were the well-oiled Koenkai, the private support associations run by candidates and funded by the LDP, pioneered by the ludicrously corrupt Tanaka Kakue. You can think of these like a sort of ongoing permanent campaign office. We'll spend a little more time next week going a bit more in depth to remind you on how they work. Another big part of making this system run effectively was pork barrel politics, useful both for maintaining rural support for the LDP and motivating members of Koenkai to get out the organized vote. This made the system self-perpetuating. To get elected, you have to be able to offer pork barrel incentives, like new infrastructure projects, to get out votes. If you're not already in office, you can't do that. So, in order to get elected, you have to be elected, which makes the system very self-perpetuating and very hard for outsiders, like, say, socialist candidates, to break into. Even the end of a long incumbency doesn't really offer much of an opening, because those Koenkai political machines were usually just passed down to the next person chosen by the LDP, which, in a nicely traditional twist, was often the child of the retiring politician. Careful gerrymandering meant that the LDP was overrepresented electorally. For example, in the 1960 general election, the socialists pulled in 27% of the vote and got 30% of the seats up for grabs. By comparison, with 58% of the vote, the LDP grabbed 65% of the seats up for contention, more than double the gap in the vote-to-seats comparison from the socialists. 
In general, then, the socialists were confined to bastions of strength in major cities, including Kyoto, Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya. The communists, meanwhile, pulled substantially worse, averaging in the low single digits for most of the post-war period. Still, both the socialists and the communists were able to hold on to some degree of political relevancy, mostly by finding wedge issues where the socialist stance was more broadly popular than socialist politics as a whole were. The first of these, rather unsurprisingly, was the nuclear issue. We've talked a bit about the birth of Japan's anti-nuclear movement in relation to a certain movie about a giant mutated lizard flattening Tokyo, but believe it or not, the anti-nuclear movement is bigger than its contribution to the history of cinema. Socialist organizers took a leading role in organizing against the presence of American nuclear weapons on Japanese soil, and pushed for a ban on nuclear development altogether. The Japan Council Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs, for example, was generally seen as left-leaning, though not directly affiliated with the socialists. The socialists and communists also became deeply involved in the movement to protect Article 9 of the Constitution, the Peace Clause, in which Japan forever renounces war. Both socialists and communists wanted to see the clause interpreted even more strictly than it currently is. For example, both were deeply against any interpretation of Article 9, which allowed for the continuation of the Japan self-defense forces, and they're against the alliance with the United States. Both the socialists and the communists, in essence, really embraced the idea of Japan as the Switzerland of Asia, friendly with everyone, but disarmed to a certain extent, relying on the goodwill of neighbors to protect them. For example, when the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty was up for renewal in 1960, both socialists and communists were deeply involved in organizing protests against its renewal. And by the way, if any of you happen to be Swiss, yes, I do know Switzerland has a military, and in fact has a requirement for universal military service, if I recall correctly. The Switzerland of Asia language, not mine, actually contemporary language. I know the comparison doesn't hold up perfectly. Now, unfortunately for both parties, while they had some good splinter issues to work with, they were up against one of the most shrewd political minds in Japanese history, and I would argue in the history of the 20th century. Yoshida Shigeru, and the disciples he trained to take on his role after his retirement, was infamous for his skill at using the socialists to advance his own agenda. For example, one of the most famous stories about Yoshida revolves around his relationship with his personal physician, who was a member of the Socialist Party. If, for example, Yoshida was under pressure from the Americans to step up Japan's spending on the self-defense forces, well, Yoshida would just carefully leak that fact in front of his doctor. For example, by just happening to have a meeting during one of his physicals, in which he would casually refer to American pressure and mention the precise time and location at which American diplomats would be arriving to come talk to him. And lo and behold, when the Americans arrived to try and browbeat Yoshida into accepting a spending increase, there would be protests organized by the socialists everywhere. All Yoshida had to do was point out the window and say, Sorry, but the people aren't for it, and thanks to you, we're a democracy now. 
So all of this is a very elaborate way of saying that the LDP was very skilled at co-opting socialist and communist party platforms when it suited them. The issue of Article 9, for example, did not accord with the more nationalist elements of the LDP led by Hatoyama Ichiro, but it did fit within the vision of Yoshida Shigeru, who wanted a disarmed Japan focused for now not on conquest but on becoming rich. He was happy to work with the socialists on the armament issue and to take the lead because, after all, he was the one with the real power. Similarly, the nuclear issue was one the LDP was more than happy to take up as its own. While the socialists may have been protesting against American nuclear weapons, it was, in the end, an LDP politician, Sato Eisaku, one of Yoshida's protégés, who literally got a Nobel Peace Prize for his three non-nuclear principles when he announced to the Diet that Japan's special history with nuclear weapons meant that Japan must never own, manufacture, or allow nuclear weapons in its territory. Of course, it came out later that Sato did not believe those principles at all and violated them all the time, chiefly by allowing American ships to enter Japanese harbors with nuclear weapons aboard. But still, the pronouncement itself and the peace prize he got for it allowed Sato to claim the mantle of anti-nuclear leader and undercut the left on one of its major agenda items. On other issues, meanwhile, the socialists and communists diverged substantially from the accepted norms of post-war Japanese politics, and as a result were stymied time and time again. For example, one of the earliest platforms of both the socialists and the communists was that Japan should recognize the People's Republic of China and open relations with it, rather than Taiwan. That position was opposed by the United States and also by the Liberal Democratic Party. Though Yoshida Shigeru was not opposed to working with Beijing, hardline anti-communist members of the LDP absolutely were, and Yoshida was not prepared to fight both them and the Americans on the question. That meant that socialist attempts to push for recognition ran consistently into a brick wall. The occasional visit to Beijing was the best the socialists could manage. On special flights from neutral countries, Japanese socialist politicians would come to Beijing, praise the birth of the new China, promise to convince Japan to get with the program and recognize Beijing, and then return home and proceed to accomplish nothing in the face of total American and LDP stonewalling. The best example of this phenomenon came in 1959 when the socialist dietman, Asanuma Inejiro, went to Beijing on a PR tour. He made a huge splash not only by reiterating the old refrain about how we have to recognize Beijing, but stating in a press conference in Beijing that America was the shared enemy of both China and Japan. He also received a Mao suit, the high-collared jackets favored by Beijing's communist elite, from the Chinese government and wore it on the return flight to Japan. The whole thing made a huge splash, with the right wing in particular condemning Asanuma as a traitor. However, in the end, it accomplished nothing for the actual cause of the Socialist Party, and it accomplished very little for Asanuma as well, except for painting a target on his back. The very next year, while prepping for a debate for the next set of diet elections, Asanuma was stabbed to death on live television by a young right-wing activist named Yamaguchi Otoya, who named him a traitor to the country. 
Yamaguchi was eventually captured and killed himself in prison without expressing the least bit of regret for destroying the socialist traitor Asanuma. And in an ironic little coda to this whole story, when it finally did suit the cause of the Japanese government to recognize Beijing, after the Americans under Richard Nixon finally did, well, the LDP had no problem switching gears, opening relations with Beijing, and taking 100% of the credit. In the end, then, the LDP just electorally outmaneuvered the socialists and the communists, and as a result, both parties were functionally impotent at the national level. Despite having a consistent presence in the diet, they could accomplish very little. At the local level, things were quite different. More consistent local electorates, combined with the lack of the pro-LDP gerrymandering that defined national elections, meant that the socialists did manage to end up in charge of a decent number of major cities, including Kyoto and Osaka, though Tokyo generally trended towards independent candidates. Still, that local relevance was always overshadowed by national irrelevance. What about the communists? Well, Nosaka Sanzo's strategy of defying the revolutionary line in favor of becoming a party that contested elections rather than threw Molotov cocktails proved to be something of a mixed bag. On the one hand, the communists were able to distance themselves from some of the more, say, unpleasant initiatives of Joseph Stalin, such as the Korean War. Attempts to disrupt the Allies in fighting that war almost certainly would have resulted in the ruthless suppression of the Communist Party. On the other hand, the Communists were not exactly raking in the votes either. They pulled in an average of around 3% of the nationwide vote on a yearly basis. Nor was this strategy uncontroversial within the party itself, at least from what we can garner. Even before the Japanese Communist Party officially rejected revolution in favor of the ballot box, there were party members who decried their own party for its lack of revolutionary zeal. They vocally objected to what they saw as an overly passive policy, and may or may not have been involved in a series of attacks on the Japanese industrial leadership. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about three of the great mysteries of 1949, during which Japan National Railways, the publicly run company which managed Japan's rail infrastructure, was caught up in three separate unexplained incidents. The first and most gruesome of these took place on July 5, 1949, when Shimoyama Sadanori, president of the Japan National Railways, disappeared after work one day. Somewhere between leaving the office and making his way home, he vanished having last been sighted walking along the railway tracks. Now, he was found eventually, the very next day, in fact, atop a section of a few of the railways he'd been walking along last night. But he was missing a couple of things, and by things I mean his arms and legs. Shimoyama was very, very dead. Only ten days later, a train on Tokyo's Chuo line, which bisects the heart of the city, derailed while heading into Mitaka Station, killing six people and wounding 20. In August, a passenger train headed from Tokyo to Aomori in the far north derailed just before reaching Matsukawa Station in Fukushima Prefecture, killing three crewmen. The first case, called the Shimoyama Incident for its victim, was obviously murder. People's limbs don't just fall off. The second, the Mitaka Incident, was also pretty fishy. 
Several of the crew abandoned the train before the crash, and police in a booth inside Mitaka Station, who would have basically been pancaked by a derailed train, just so happened to be out and about. And in the third case, clear evidence of sabotage of the rail line was found by inspectors. So all the signs pointed to some kind of violent conspiracy against Japan National Railways, and investigators quickly developed a theory. All three cases were linked incidents of sabotage against the government by radicalized members of the Railways Workers' Union, and these saboteurs had been incited to this act by, you guessed it, the Communists. Now how true that is is still a matter of debate. Certainly the Communist Party has never claimed responsibility for the incidents, and it does seem to run pretty counter to the whole ballot box revolution thing. So if it was the communists, it would have to be some kind of splinter faction of the party, and if their plan was to further revolution, well, it backfired pretty badly. In 1949, Japan was still occupied by the United States, and while Douglas MacArthur was not willing to flat outlaw the communist party for fear of being perceived as suppressing democratic institutions, he was more than happy to use this excuse to purge communists from the diet, pinning blame for the incidents on them. Nosaka Sanzo, denying responsibility but fearing arrest anyway, actually had to leave Japan for a several years. Even after the Americans left and the communists got those seats back, the taint of the three 1949 incidents followed them. Especially after very public trials related to the two derailings saw defendants with ties to the Communist Party convicted the conductor of one train, and the group of ten train workers and ten plant workers from a nearby factory in the other. Now, for Shimoyama's death in particular, no definitive proof regarding the cause was ever uncovered, and while plenty of salacious gossip pinned the murder on the communists, it's also possible that he was killed for unrelated reasons. After all, Japan in 1949 was kind of a desperate place. I've also seen theories that Shimoyama committed suicide by allowing himself to be hit by a train, though there's not much evidence for that. Still, the taint from all three cases followed the communists around and undercut their reputation as the party of peace. For the next half-century, the communists would have bastions in some regions. Kyoto, being a city of artsy liberal types, being one example. They also had a small but passionate national following, but never really a national party machine on the level that would enable them to seriously compete. The socialists were the closest thing to a real opposition Japan had, and really until the 90s they had about the same chance of taking control of the Japanese government as I do. Honestly, the most interesting legacy of the post-war Japanese Communist Party is simply that it completely defied the party line from Moscow. We've already talked about the decision to renounce violent revolution in favor of the ballot box, but it actually went even further than that. In the 1960s, the world's two main communist parties, the Chinese Communist Party and the older, more established party of the Soviet Union, began to drift apart. The two countries even fought a border war in 1969 and fought a sort of proxy war in Southeast Asia in the 1970s with the Soviets backing the Vietnamese communists of Ho Chi Minh, and the Chinese backing the Maoist Khmer Rouge of Pol Pot. Most other communist parties around the world picked one side or the other, most of them picked the Soviets, honestly. The highest profile party to side with the Chinese was the mighty world power of Albania. 
However, the Japanese Communist Party remained studiously neutral. It refused to pick one side or the other officially, though members of the party leadership, especially Nosaka Sanzo, were generally predisposed towards China given the long cultural and historical connections between the two countries. So the Japanese Communist Party is interesting primarily because it did not fit the traditional mold of a communist party at all. It was neither revolutionary nor guided by some broader communist movement. As a strategy, this had both its ups and downs. The lack of a formal affiliation meant that the JCP did not get support from either Moscow or Beijing. But it also meant that, for example, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the JCP did not lose a crucial source of funding or expertise that it had come to rely on in the way that so many other parties had. So that's the early post-war left in a nutshell. The socialists, on the one hand, were the focal point of opposition to the government, and some of their policies, the ones with broad appeal, were able to get real public support. However, those positions were often skillfully co-opted by the Liberal Democratic Party. And when the socialists pushed for less popular elements of their platform, well, that went nowhere fast. The communists, meanwhile, were a revolutionary party representing a worldwide workers' movement that had abandoned both revolution and the worldwide workers' movement. In 1949, more than a few people predicted revolution in the streets of Tokyo. Ten years later, very clear that was not going to happen. The revolutionary moment, if it had ever existed, had passed. Instead, ironically, both parties served more than anything to legitimate the new Japanese order backed by the United States. Japan must be a true democracy, because even these dudes are allowed to campaign. Next week, in our final episode in this series, we'll explore more closely the role of the socialists and communists in modern Japanese democracy, and see how they fit into the tapestry of Japanese politics from the 1990s on. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Red Star Over Tokyo, Part 6.